Welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Jan Orman. In this podcast series, we've invited people we know and admire to tell you their stories. My name's Paula Kotovich. So my name is Craig Sample. Evie Rader. Molly Shorthouse. My name's Percy Knight. I was a career detective in the New South Wales Police Force. I identify as a trans woman. I am a remote doctor in East Arnhem Land. These are people who may not have made the headlines, but whose stories are just as worthy of your attention as those you hear about in the media. Living with cancer. I was struggling with PTSD for eight or nine years. I just had a lot of fear. I was well and truly burnt out. These are people who have flourished and met life's challenges while managing their social and emotional well-being. Uh, my career now uh, is as a mental health advocate and educator. I led a team that negotiated a $22 million native title. It definitely taught me in my life a lot of persistence and gave me a lot of strength. We're hoping you'll find something in these stories to inspire you, whatever your situation right now. Tessa Moriarty is a very busy woman. She's a mental health nurse consultant based on the Mornington Peninsula, but working in all sorts of areas, both in terms of the kind of work she does and where she does it. For Tessa, like most of us, the pandemic took a toll, not just by significantly increasing her workload, but in many other ways as well. Tessa's work made her very aware of the impact the pandemic was having in the health professions. But for her personally, the issue of work-life balance became a significant problem, a problem that she took a long time to recognise. You may well see aspects of your own story in the one that Tessa tells. It may be helpful for you to hear about how Tessa approached the problem and the strategies she used to improve her well-being and get her life back on an even keel. Hi there, my name's Tessa Moriarty. I live in Summers on the Mornington Peninsula and it's the it's a very quiet side. It's the Western Port Bay side of the peninsula and I'm close to the sea. I'm a mental health nurse um, and I call myself a mental health nurse consultant. I've been a mental health nurse all my life. And um, now in the twilight of my career, I mostly care for the carers. So I do supervision and reflective practice. Uh, for health professionals across all the sectors, mental health, primary health and alcohol and drug sectors. And I love what I do and I also love to sing and I I sing and I have a ukulele group um, and we've just started performing and um, our aim in the next 12 months is to go into aged care, residential facilities, and learn their songs and sing with them on a regular basis. So that's me, and I'm really um, feel very honoured and pleased to be here this morning. So I'd have to say that, um, you know, I always, I've, I'm a re- relatively driven person. I live a full life. And, um, you know, um, my day, my week, my schedule, my month's busy, you know, busy with both work, commitments, projects and activities and my personal life, home life, family life's also very busy. Um, So while prior to the pandemic I felt 
in more control of my work-life balance, you know, there's always an edge. There's always been an edge to it at which um, I've always had to monitor, monitor that balance so that I'm not tipping over one way or the other. Prior to the pandemic, I had more work-life balance and the variety in my work um, meant that I could, I was traveling. So I was traveling across the state uh, to organizations and in some ways it gave me a break. And then I'd take perhaps the day after that off. Um, So I I felt like I was in more control and in kind of charge of my work. And I think the work volume and the workload wasn't as great as it became during the pandemic. Come the pandemic, of course, um, there were, not only was there an increase in workload, because I think, you know, the work world was stressed and um, not only did we have to change the way we worked and where we worked, um, but there seemed to be an increasing level of anxiety um, about the world. And um, I think that added to the work that had to be done and it just added, it added to the need and it certainly added to the mental health distress, not only of the people who, you know, who were clients of those I was supporting, but the staff I was working with were themselves stressed in their lives and then stressed about the, the, the clients uh, that they themselves were supporting. So it was like there was kind of a double level of anxiety. Uh, so, yes, so the workload increased. There was kind of rising anxiety um, and so a lot of my work was actually supporting and managing health professionals' anxiety about the world and the state of the world, managing the pandemic, the isolation from the pandemic. And, um, of course, I was having to manage that for myself at the same time. Just even managing the effect of working on video platform all day and kind of getting used to that and how, how tiring that can be. And then having to do that myself, but also having to support health professionals through those issues. So I, I was very much aware of the, of the increasing level of anxiety and stress across, across the workforces that I was engaged with, across the sectors, sector services that I was engaged with, across the organisations. As the organisations I was working with struggled, like we were running to support communities, you know, in the development of services like Head to Help, for instance, in services where they didn't have the frameworks, they didn't have the policies and procedures or the manuals or how to do some of those services, let alone the staff uh, to do to do all that. So the pressure to get those things done really increased levels of anxiety across organisations and within staff. And while some services at the same time as that was all happening realised that they had to support their staff, you know, that was fundamental and vital, sometimes there just wasn't the time, you know, and people weren't always supported in ways in which 
they should have been, or I felt certainly that they should have. And so I'd sometimes raise, what are we doing about well-being here? But for a large part, I kind of I ran with the flow too. You know, I felt the pressure myself of let's get the work done, let's write, let's write this policy, let's write this procedure, kind of. So I got swept up in some of it as well. During the pandemic, because uh, I didn't have, you know, the same, the usual resources available to me, I had my clinical supervision, but I didn't have friends. I didn't have kind of a bigger touch hands network. I couldn't connect with my family in the same way. I knew I needed some additional support. And so um, I had previously used the 10 app or, or maybe it was in the earlier part of the pandemic. And that was around some of the the resources, the information in that app. But I, at the same time, I downloaded the the Headspace app, and I was particularly interested in using the mindfulness and the meditation. So I did use that app, the particularly the Headspace app, during during the pandemic, and. And, you know, I'd do a little meditation before I went to bed on that, and that that helped a lot. And um, some of their exercise, some of their talks on that were, were quite, I found quite useful. So, you know, the workload's continuing to increase. The uncertainty and the constraints and the stress around the pandemic on everybody um, and myself. And, you know, the, the personal, the personal, if you like, uh, consequences of that were also taking its toll, as they were on other people, you know. So not being able to see my own family, uh, my own grandson, and, you know, my two sons and their families, um, certainly added to my stress, then in the middle of the second year of the pandemic, um, my very closest sister died, and and that was an incredible shock. You know, not, none of us were ready for her to die, let alone she was in a space where she should have died. She was healthy. Um, it came completely out of the blue and she was was my eldest sister and the sister I was closest to had been my surrogate mother, you know, and she was in New Zealand. So um, being incredibly busy in my work, feeling stressed myself in my personal life, kind of trying to monitor and manage my own well-being and work-life balance and then have my sister die was incredibly hard. It, I, you know, it knocked me uh, for, you know, quite some time. There were some good bits in there. I managed to get over to New Zealand in the, like in a window of, I don't know, it would have been a week between lockdowns in Victoria. And um, I, that, that meant a lot to me, to see her body, to be with her body. Um, uh, two days after she'd died, I promptly got back into work 
mode. I might have had a week or two off at the most, and that included my time, my short time in New Zealand. Um, so I'm grieving, grieving still. I knew that, um, but I didn't want to not work. And of course, there were the pressures to work. And you know, I know as a counsellor myself that um, some structure to one's life during a period of grief, you know, can be a good thing. And it wasn't like I could go anywhere anyway. So I, I kept working through my grief. And, you know, in hindsight now, and if we'd not been in a pandemic, that I might not have actually done that. I might have taken longer. But I didn't. I kept working. Come Christmas of 2021 in January and February, I really, I really when I stopped, I really knew uh, that I needed to stop because of the way I was feeling and because of the way I was persistently feeling. So the, the tiredness was there. It's, you know, it's the tiredness that's still there in the morning, you know, after you've had mm, not the best night's sleep, but, you know, some amount of sleep. So it's a, it's a morning tiredness. And a, and, a, and a daily tiredness. I was grumpy. I was grumpy and irritable and, you know, uh, on occasion becoming irritable and frustrated with um, colleagues I was working with uh, as well as my husband. So it was my irritability and grumpiness. I was kind of beginning to feel grumpy um, with the world <laughs> and, and many people in it. It was my tiredness, my grumpiness. Uh, it was that dragging my feet through the day. There's no kind of sense of joy or lightness to the way I was feeling. Um, I had I had lost my appetite, um, and I was teary. You know, a lot of the time, um, I couldn't be bothered. Um, kind of doing things that I previously would have brought me joy. I, I kept going with some things like my ukulele group. I, I kept going with that. But, but again, it's because of the mental health professional I was and the, the, the myths and the messages I gave to myself about needing to, to, um, needing to take care of myself and that I hadn't, some of it I... Some of my symptoms I kept to myself. Um, but it was the tiredness, the lack of uh, uh, the lack of kind of lightness, the dragging my feet, the irritability, um, the lack of joy, not feeling like I could be bothered, and the, the, the teariness and the persistence, I guess, of those feelings. And then I remember I had an instance one day I was actually sitting outside and I'm looking outside as I'm saying it I can because I can still see it. A colleague of mine who lives up the road had come down and she's a nurse too and she was contemplating retirement because she, she, she felt burnt out. And she said to me she knew she, was, she needed to do something for herself when she was with a patient and something the patient said to her, she heard herself say, really, I can't be bothered listening to you anymore. Or, you know, it's like, and she shocked herself at her sense of indifference. 
And I remember thinking, I feel a bit that way. No, not just a bit that way. I feel that way too. And it was like she was indifferent to her patient's needs and to what her patient was saying. So that was another kind of flag for me too, that I I needed to do something about it and that I I was burnt out. And then, um, you know, I was, what's the word, I was thinking about my sister. Her kind of presence was with me more and more. And, um, you know, and so some of it was burnout, some of it was grief, some of my teariness was grief. So they were my symptoms, you know, the symptoms that I was used to saying to other people, this is the difference between tiredness, fatigue, and this is what burnout's like. It doesn't go away. It persists over time. Sometimes sometimes it's other people that notice it. My husband noticed the way I was feeling. Before you do, you know, a holiday doesn't make a difference. You do feel indifferent to, to things. I knew I wasn't depressed, because I, uh, but it, it, it's different to that. It's actually, yeah, there's a difference to it. But I knew I was burnt out. And that's when, um, come February, March, I realised I've got to do something. I had to admit to myself, no, I need help now. I am burnt out. I am grieving and I need to actually stop and do something about it. And I need some help. And this is the bit that I really want to share and I've heard others talk about this, how hard it is to acknowledge to yourself that you're not okay, particularly as a mental health professional, particularly when you're monitoring and supporting the well-being of others. And, and even though I'd been through a busy two pandemic years and I'd lost someone so close to me, you know, it was the context was all there. No, I know the theory. Contextually, situationally, it made sense that I was feeling the way I did. However, I still expected myself to have come through better than I was, you know. Uh, so it was that was one of the reasons why it was so hard to admit, you know. It's like a builder not having, uh, uh, not, not building his house properly or, you know, still having rooms in his house he needs to build. You know, a mental health professional, a mental health nurse, kind of not taking good enough care of herself and getting to the point where she's, where I was. I was burnt out and I was still grieving and really struggling because of those two things. So once I'd acknowledged uh, to myself that I was burnt out and grieving and I needed help and I was ready to kind of make that step, and I did. So the, the counselling step was was perfect. I was ready for that, and it worked well. And at the same time, I the the local polar bear swimming group, and I had been thinking, and I'd read a, some articles even before the polar bears swimming group about the you know the power the the power of cold water swimming and the effect of it on people's mental health. And I had been into this notion of intentional self-care and so 
I thought that swimming in the cold water in my local at my local beach and in the sea would be an intentional way of improving my mental health. So previously, being a swimmer, uh, you know, I swim for my physical well-being, my, you know, and for the fitness and the exercise. This was different. My mental health and my well-being was suffering. I was low. I was burnt out. I was grieving. I wanted to swim to improve my mental health. And so I felt armed with enough kind of um, information around me to give it a go. I found, you know, coincidentally at the same time, the local group. And there I was, you know, my first morning down on the water. It was cold, it was raining. You know, I'd done some reading and and I knew the water temperature was going to be about 10 degrees. And the water slams your face. And you've got to get under. You've got to feel the cold water on your whole body. It's kind of, it's got to go up up your neck, it's your whole head's got to feel it, you've got to submerge yourself in the water. The, the, one of the beautiful things about swimming is you come, to, you come to want the cold, you come to love the cold. The cold actually makes you feel good. You know, and through it, I just, just discovered you know, and then the strength in me, I discovered I could see swim. I discovered that I could stay up in the water and swim a kilometre even in the water. Uh, I discovered that morning was the best time to swim because it kind of made me feel better for the whole day. I discovered that um, I could sustain a good that good feeling across not just across the day, but across the week, across the months. And so we started swimming three times a week in the mornings, two, four and five times a week. I even talked my husband into joining me, you know, and he'd been through a lot, I will say, in his support of me during that grief period, during my work from home time. And, um, you know, he was a, he was a champion, and he's not a great swimmer like I am, you know, likes the water, but he came on the journey with me and it meant a lot, a lot to me, and it brought us closer together. Um, and, you know, the two of us connected with the locals, quite a few locals from the local swim group, and those, again, those connections um, really supported my mental health and, um, you know, I hope to think that that I... I gave some value to, to the to the life of others as well, and so we started uh, more of a kind of a group swim on Saturday mornings, and um, that's still going today, and uh, you know we're still swimming uh, in the sea and still feeling the benefits of it, and I you know because I tracked my mood over time, I really felt a sustained difference in my mental health and my well-being. So one of the benefits of swimming, sea swimming, um, and the counselling, well, there were many benefits actually. You know, I knew I needed it for my burnout and my grief. But um, I was heading towards the first anniversary of my uh, late sister's death, 
So Māori culture, as with a, a number of cultures, is to um, celebrate, if you like, or, and mark the first anniversary of your loved one's passing 12 months, you know, around the 12-month time. And it's not, it's not as, what's the word, strict as it used to be, you know, where, when my mother passed, when my, one of my previous brothers passed. It, it was more strict. You know, the new generation of young Māori and young New Zealanders were a little bit more softer with it. So, but in general, there is a coming back, you know, it's often done around that first anniversary of death, a coming back, a getting back together that in a way that is different from the coming together around the time of funeral and grief and mourning when someone dies. So you would expect there's, there's more of a celebration, more of a lightness, more of a healing, it's, and it's time for reflection. So <clears throat> that, would have, that was July um, this year, actually, and um, I was mindful of using the swimming and the counselling as a way of preparing myself for that visit back to New Zealand. And so I actually talked about that a lot in my counselling, about, uh, you know, obviously the, my, the grief of losing my sister. I talked through that a lot. But I talked also through preparing myself for that visit back to New Zealand and, and kind of what that meant in my healing. So, you know, the timing of it plus the the resilience and the endurance, I think, that I was gaining, that I've gained and was gaining through sea swimming, really, really helped me come to come to accept better, obviously, my sister's death and her loss, but the prepare for the journey back home um, and seeing her grave site for the first time in person because I hadn't been there for her burial. Um, but making peace in some ways with my with with that whole process of losing her, with living away from my family, with you know, with much of the grief of there's other grief in this childhood and you know everything that had gone down before then. So it was a beautiful, beautiful event. It in true New Zealand Wellington style, it was raining cats and dogs. It was blowing a gale. The weather was atrocious. And in our Māori culture, we would say the gods were crying, you know, and, you know, and the wind god was blowing up a storm for my sister. So, and where my sister is, is buried is in our family cemetery. Um, and it's, if you like, it's our tribe, part of our tribe's cemetery, so it's on a very picturesque spot on top of a hill in the, above the village, a little town where we grew up, and the view is out to sea, so it's got a, it's got a beautiful view to it. So we came together, a small group of her siblings and one of her best friends, in the pouring rain, in the wind and the gale, wet, and we sing. 
and we so we pray and we sing and we tell stories of our sister and her life and how much we loved her and we finish it with uh, my brother opened opened it and he would he closed it as well in Maori uh, one of my brothers is who's the the Maori elder of our family now so he did that and it was beautiful and you know it was it was wet it was raining and you know she she would have loved it um, she wouldn't so it was it was truly lovely and then we go and have a cup of tea and you know a, a cake together and 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 that was it essentially but in that it's I was able to see her grave. I hadn't seen it before. And again, let go to celebrate my sister's life, but to let go of a lot of grief I'd felt, not just around losing my sister, but in leaving New Zealand and some of the childhood I had. Um, and kind of stepping through the preparatory work, by the time I got off that, that flight on in Wellington, I felt, you know, I felt a sense of strength, internal strength, courage, resilience, um, hope, like readiness um, that I hadn't actually felt before. That was that was quite new to me. Um, so much so that. The, I spent three days. I only spent three days there. They were beautiful. They were really, really beautiful. And I had an epiphany actually while I was there. And I eventually wrote a, another story about it. It was more than just my sister's death. It was kind of the loss of country, the loss of childhood, you know, and the grief, the grief I'd left behind all those kind of years ago, but still carried. So the swimming and the counselling work I'd done in preparing myself for that journey home was it was like gold. It was so valuable. So you know, when I by the time I came back to Melbourne and got back home again, you know, four days later, I, I feel like I have really not just journeyed through through my burnout and grief, but um, really, really, really healed um, in a way, in ways that I wouldn't have done, I don't think, if I hadn't done, hadn't done the sea swimming, hadn't done the counselling. I'm looking forward to continuing to swim, you know, and I get developing kind of a new relationship with the water as summer approaches. I no longer need to wear my wetsuit and that's already happened. So I've taken off my wetsuit. The water's the water I can um, joyfully say is about 15, 16, you know, sometimes 17 degrees. So it's getting warmer. So it's a different feeling. So I'm looking forward to fit, to swimming you know, in the summer, the dolphins, the dolphins come out more in the, in the summer down here. So we swim, we swim occasionally with the dolphins. That's really something to look forward to. Thank you for listening. 
If there's been anything in this podcast that you found distressing, don't forget to talk to your usual support person or call Lifeline on 131114. And if you'd like to hear more in the Being Well podcast series, you can find it on the Black Dog Institute website.